Welcome to episode 6 of Recovering. Our guest is seasoned New Zealand Herald investigative reporter and author of Gangland, Jared Savage. Jared decided to speak with Reverend Frank Ritchie about a seemingly straightforward story, a tragic homicide. Unexpectedly, however, it grew into an extensive expose of the heart-wrenching hardship that shaped Mari Harlick's short life. A warning. Details shared in this conversation may be distressing. I'm Petra Bagist from Media Chaplaincy New Zealand. Throughout this series, broadcaster and media chaplain Reverend Frank Ritchie is joined by leading New Zealand journalists to unpack the one story from their career which has impacted them the most, personally and professionally. Here's Frank with Jared Savage. Jared Savage, it's a pleasure having you in our humble little studio. Thanks for making the trip. You drove all the way up from Tauranga for this. Yeah, yeah. Had a bit of uh, good old Auckland traffic on the way through, but uh, reminded me of uh, why I never want to come back and live here. But no, nah, it's good. It's good to be here. <laughs> now, mate, in my world, you've always been a bit of an anomaly. And the story that we're going to talk about highlights uh, this a little, and I'll, I might mention why a bit later, but I need to start out really honestly. As a chaplain, I often have people sitting down with me, and they never intend to get there, but once they start offloading about life, they end up in uh, tears. I can almost guarantee that's not going to happen for you. But when I read this story, uh, I I struggled. I struggled reading the story that we're going to talk about. Usually, I see headlines like this and I just move on. I don't I don't feel a need to read the story because I know it's going to be horrific. But I read the story that we're going to talk about and choked up. I had to get up yesterday, uh, wander around a little bit to ease the sense of tension that I was feeling. So my guess is at the end of this, you're not going to need a chaplain because you just seem to be the quintessential hardened journalist. But I feel like I'm going to walk away and need a chaplain to sit down with. Yeah, look, and I'm probably not quite the right shoulder to cry on. But uh, look, it it is, uh, I use the word grim, but it's so much more than that as well. So yeah, we can we can unpack that. Yeah, so we'll get into that shortly. But first, I've long admired your work, your investigative work for The Herald. Uh, and we've chatted a number of times. But it amazes me that someone that seems to be built for what you do kind of became an investigative journalist for The Herald quite by accident. Yeah, I kind of, like growing up as a kid, you know, I didn't really harbour any desires to be a journalist or even really know what that was. I was actually failing a calculus paper at school and the only other class available was journalism and it was with my English teacher um, Peter Cook who was a great English teacher and he was like well look come and do journalism and we'll we'll reinvigorate the school paper the Hills Dean Reflector at Tauranga Boys College and it just came out of that really just fell into that and I enjoy meeting people and and just hearing their stories and, and trying to write it up in a entertaining sort of way so that's how it happened and, and initially I just I wanted to be a, a rugby writer I was no, no good at playing it but I thought oh we could write about it and be the next win grace to love reading the Herald and reading Wynn's work there so I wanted to be a sports you know and um, that was the plan and um, yeah it soon got derailed into uh, a lot more sort of crime and justice sort of issues so yeah it's just uh, yeah I can't really explain how it happened but you just start working and meeting people and one thing leads to another, and next thing you're writing about 500 kilo drug importations, you know? So it's, um, yeah, it's funny how it's worked out. Yeah, and those drug importations, you get into that in Gangland, the book that you've written about organised crime in New Zealand. Uh, 
strange read because there's plenty of times I read Gangland and I I laughed out loud because it sounds comical. But then when I think about the impact of organised crime in New Zealand, it's horrific. I mean, the stuff that you've done on meth is a good indicator of that. Yeah, and sometimes we joke about how it's disorganised crime because, um, you know, even the best laid plans can come unstuck. But look, yeah, you know, and there are some laugh out loud moments in it, and I think that's good to balance the, the grimness of it all because, yeah, we do have a massive methamphetamine problem here in New Zealand and, and other associated issues which come out of that, including domestic violence that we'll, we'll talk about a bit about today. And when I talk to journalists from overseas about the book or other stories, you know, overseas people uh, view us as Aotearoa, this beautiful country of paradise, and there are a lot of underlying social issues that, you know, people aren't necessarily aware of unless journalists are digging it up and, and writing about it. Mm. And your journalism seems to very much be about this world that's going on in our country that most people would have absolutely no idea about. Or they hear some headlines and they pass it down to very black and white stories as kind of this fringe thing that's happening over there. But when you dive into your work, clearly this world that most of us aren't connected with is pervasive. Uh, It's going on everywhere all the time. Yep, and it's a world that um, growing up I was unaware of as well and and even coming through um, school and university and it wasn't really until I began journalism that there's a world that, uh, you know, can be quite dark and grim and that's actually people's reality and it's something that they live through every day and it's very difficult and it's um, it becomes a matter of unfairness really in, in terms of our society and, and it wasn't really something that I always thought about or understood or knew about and sometimes when you're, when you're younger as a journalist things can be quite black and white things are good or bad, there are goodies and baddies and protagonists and antagonists but really the, the reality is things are a lot more complicated and, and complex and it's shades of grey and um, I guess as a journalist we always want to do you know the big, the big hit story that's going to change the world or change something you know a big scoop or a scalpel or whatever it is but I think in more recent times I've come to sort of think about journalism more is not just one story that might do something but just like being continuously telling those stories so that there's a gradual change or people might read it and go oh I hadn't really thought about it that way or just more <laughs> changing things over, over, over time I guess has probably become more of a focus of mine of late and to sort of try and dive into sort of these very complicated things which, yeah, they can just be boiled down to a headline, but that doesn't tell the full story. Mm-hmm. You know? Certainly it's certainly true with the meth issue. I would imagine that if you didn't have that view of change over time and stories incrementally feeding into that, it would be easy to feel useless. Like I remember watching your doco that you did on meth a little while ago and thinking this problem isn't going to change overnight. And then you did your story recently about the difference in uh, wastewater testing of the presence of meth in some of our poorer rural communities versus our urban centres. That's not going to change anytime soon. So it would be easy to feel like this whole thing is useless. Yeah, and and I think a lot of journalists probably do feel that way sometimes. Or if you've been reporting over something for a long period of time and you see the same problems occurring or or getting worse, it it would be easy to feel deflated about it. And I guess that's why I've probably taken almost that deliberate sort of mentality to to see it as a long game and not just a one-off thing that you might be able to get a a, a quick result from. Because like I said, these things are, are complicated and it's 
you know, <laughs> it's not going to change overnight. We've had 20 years of a, of a meth problem in New Zealand. It's not going to be fixed with one story. No one should should think that. Mm. Talking about complexity and nuance, one of the issues in New Zealand that you have had a reasonable amount of interaction with and you've covered is gangs in New Zealand. And there's been a lot of headlines. There's been a lot of political talk about gangs. How do you feel about the public conversation? Um, how do I feel about it? I mean, I'm not a gang expert. I have a lot of experience in reporting on organised crime. And I think one thing that I would point out is that organised crime and gangs are not necessarily synonymous. I think that can get conflated at times. I mean, largely because of reporting, like some of it my own, I suppose, in the past, or gangs have become quite a political football lately. But from my experience, a lot of people wanting to join gangs are doing so out of a sense of, uh, wanting to find belonging, perhaps, or I mean, a lot of them have had some terrible stuff happen to them. Basically, uh, trauma is a bit of a, a word that we gets thrown around, but you know, they've had some really terrible stuff happen to them, coming from broken homes, abuse, drugs and alcohol, whatever it might be. And I think I think a gang can provide a sense of brotherhood and belonging, and 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 that's probably not again in terms of you know maybe ten years ago I probably wouldn't have been talking about gangs in, in, in that kind of in that kind of context. And of course, some of those people in gangs, and many of them senior, are also involved in organised crime and, and heavily involved in the importation and, and distribution of meth, which is, of course, causing great destruction in our community. So it's like, you know, it's it's a hard thing because we want to chuck gangs into being bad people, and many of them do really bad stuff, but also they've had bad stuff happen to them. So it's kind of... It's a difficult one. <laughs> the whole sort of let's smash the gang sort of mantra has been around for decades. I don't think it's got us any further ahead. And I would say, actually, the police do smash gangs, gang members that are involved in, 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 in the criminality side of things as well. So I think we need to be a bit more nuanced, perhaps, in our approach to how we might address some of the underlying issues as to why people mm. might want to join a gang. When you look at the history of a lot of our gang members, abuse and state care is one of the factors. They see the state and they see society as this thing that's just going to abuse them and is against them. So I would imagine that some of the political rhetoric just entrenches that sense of disenfranchisement. Yeah, I think that is a fair thing to say. If you're an outsider and you feel like society has walked away from you, then you're going to continue to walk away from them, particularly people that are getting up and with sort of that sort of very negative rhetoric. And like you say, many of the older gangs um, started out of basically that sort of trauma and that abuse coming out of state care, coming out of their homes. I've just read Arthur Taylor's book, which is coming out very shortly. He's not a gang member, but is a very notorious criminal. Uh, and he uh, has basically, he says that his path into the criminality was set, um, him being sent to the Apuni home down in Wellington, and he talks about that, and I won't sort of spoil the book for anyone that wants to read it, but certainly that's the root of where a lot of these gangs are coming from. I would add, though, that things have changed a lot in, in, in recent times. There's a new generation of, of gang members coming through who do just want to live a gangster lifestyle, if I could put it like that, and they like the bling and the flash bikes and the, and the money that comes from drug dealing as well. So it, it's complex and convoluted. Like You can't just put everyone in the same box. You know, it's, uh, it's I don't know what the solutions are. I mean, obviously, enforcing the law is a good place to start. But I think the wider 
the wider sort of conversations around well you know why are people why are people wanting to you know join a gang it's i think we need to start tackling those sort of issues as well mm. so organized crime in new zealand obviously there are some gang members involved but it goes much broader than that doesn't it it really does um the way that i would see it i, I guess some people would say gangs are synonymous with organized crime um, I see it more as like overlapping circles and, and so I don't necessarily think that, say there's 10 members of a particular gang chapter, I don't think they're sitting around a table um, discussing crimes together as an organised group like we might see on Sons of Anarchy or that other TV shows like that, but there'll be members within that group who are using the patch to sort of have their own side hustle, I suppose. So they'll have other patch members answering to them and then there'll be other people who will be helping them who aren't gang members, but they might, I don't know, run a business or whatever it might be as part of that sort of side sell, if if you will. And then you've got, you know, we've got cartels sending gear over from Mexico and South America. We've got the Chinese syndicates sending gear over and you know and then, and then it spreads much wider than that and you know we've got lawyers and accountants <laughs> helping organized crime figures structure their affairs and hide the money or send the money overseas so it's it's more than just gang members it's it's much wider they're part of the ecosystem yeah. uh, if, we, if we could put it like that I and mean, i would say i mean i do think that some of the um the more recent gangs that have arrived here from australia after being deported i think they probably are sitting around the table like the Sons of Anarchy example that we've got, I think they've got a very different sort of approach there. For example, you know, the Comancheros, their president, vice president, treasurer, sergeant at arms, and other members of their hierarchy are all currently inside convicted on sort of money laundering and organised crime charges. I, I think they're bringing a different bent to it than some of our older gangs might be, in which I do think it's probably individual members or small pockets within a chapter you know, working essentially to, to sell and distribute meth, which is the, the number one most lucrative commodity that we have. So, yeah, again, it's not black and white, and you can't lump everyone into the same box. It's complicated, and, and it comes down to individual cases as well. So, mm. All right, right, I've been avoiding this. Let's dive into the story that you're going to talk about. So firstly, for those who might not be familiar with the story of Mari Harlick, give us a rundown of the story. So... Mari was killed in her home in Oportiki, sort of in the Eastern Bay of Plenty. This was back in late 2016. I had recently moved to Tauranga from Auckland, so we relocated the family out of there. And I didn't really know that many, from a journalistic point of view, I didn't have many sources. Like I had a, a wide-ranging network up here of people that I could... You know, if I was needing a story and wanting to find something out, you could reach out to people, whereas just starting afresh down there. So I'm meeting new people involved um, in sort of that police, crime and justice world, and um, I met up with this person, and, and they said, look, you want to look into this case? And I said, oh, what's happened? And she said, oh, this poor girl's been, been murdered by her partner. And the initial tip was what had happened was is that he had beaten her up, and then been arrested and then the judge despite strenuous opposition from the police and, and some quite good information to say that he should not be released he was released on bail and then promptly went around and killed her about five days later when Which, we say kill we're not just talking shot her stabbed her and she died quickly quite a, a brutal sustained beating in which internal organs were were ruptured and it's quite a confronting sort of attack 
And so that was the initial tip. And bear in mind that I've done a lot of these sort of stories before countless murders and baby deaths and, and things like that. So, Including the Kahui twins. Ka- Kahui twins pretty much from, from day one, the moment that they were in the hospital and, and still alive, and lots of other ones which people will be familiar with. And so my initial sort of gut on this story was, all right, okay, well, let's... There's been a mistake made here, and it's cost this young woman her life. And that was kind of like the focus of the story. I was like, oh, this won't take that long. Well, you know, but it didn't have many starting points. So it was a matter of trying to get court documents, electoral roll records, driving out to a potiki, door knocking around, you know. And I managed to get the documents out of the court, which basically stacked up what we were wanting to achieve with that kind of a, an initial sort of quick hit story. And then um, I thought, actually, you know, I need to speak to the family, like her family, to find out, just tugging that thread, basically. And so I didn't really know where they lived. I had multiple addresses from, you know, that I thought where they might live and done a bit of, you know, Facebook stalking and things like that. So I, I wrote a letter just to say, explain who I was, what I was looking into, what I believed to be the issue in terms of what led to Mari's death. Went out to Fokatane and Opotiki and, and, and just left these letters in various houses. And about a week later, I got a phone call, and it was a woman who introduced herself as Vicky. And Vicky was Mari's sister. And so we, and people, you kind of forget as a journalist how confronting it is for a strange do you know to turn up and leave a letter at your door or knock on your door or and so I just said to her hey well look it's kind of hard doing this on the phone shall I just come and see you it's not an interview Um, I just want to talk to you and explain where I'm coming from and you can basically um, see if you like the cut of my jib and if you don't then you can show me the door (laughs) and if you do then we can work out a a plan going forward. I think it's worth pointing out here that because you're quite matter-of-fact about this, but for people listening, you're sitting down and talking with someone whose sister has just been brutally murdered and there are children in the mix. Yeah. That's the situation that you're walking into. Yeah, and it's hard because I, I am talking about it matter-of-factly, and when I'm talking to them, I'm kind of talking matter-of-factly as well, simply because you want to show empathy and sympathy, but you're also not wanting to, like... I'm not wanting to like manipulate their their emotions mm. to get it to get it. I don't want to be going and saying, oh, you know, it's it's a real hard balance between being kind and compassionate, but also like not not giving them any false impressions. It's mm. like, well, this is what I think happened, and this is what I'm trying to achieve, and yeah, it's a it's a bit of it's a bit of a juggle because um, you're not these people's therapist as well or, yeah. or counselor, and, and like. And it does turn into that sometimes, and I'm not actually equipped to do that. But it's a, it's a it's a matter of just I don't know, just stopping and, and listening as well. I think that's probably whenever you knock on someone's door as a journalist, I think you find you get three reactions. I think one is, and in kind of an equal amounts, you get the big f off, the big angry no, how dare you? You're intruding on grief and you're a piece of work, and you've just got to like walk away from that and be like okay well I understand that and then the second one is not right now you know it's too soon and you go okay well, and you might just try and leave your contact details or, or get theirs and, and then build a relationship that way and then you get the oh thank goodness you're here come on in we needed we needed to tell someone else our story and that's what happened with Vicky basically and so she was able to tell me the full story of Mari's life going all the way back to when they were children, how their family had broken up, how Mari had, you know, they'd been sent off to different family members, 
Murray had basically been abused, left school at the age of 12 or 13, began drinking alcohol as a young teenage girl, getting pregnant at a young age, falling into an abusive relationship, which led to more children being born. One of those children died in like a co-sleeping type situation where the baby had been the bed and, and had been smothered. Another son who had gone off to another family member had died in what was believed to be a suspected suicide but was then later found to be like a tragic sort of hanging accident. And, and Vicky was just rolling this story out to me. I'm sitting there kind of a bit shell-shocked. This is over a, a course of several meetings and interviews, mm-hmm. not all in one go. And, of course, at the same time, while she's telling me things, I'm saying, well, I need to corroborate this. So I'm sending off, you know, requests for coroner's reports and various other bits of what I'd call primary documents to back up what Vicky was telling me. And just on and on it went, this life of tragedy, really. And it was quite, it's quite a heavy story. And as this is, so as we're doing this and meeting and doing interviews, of course, I can't actually report it at that time because the court case was ongoing. And the person that had been charged with Murray's um, murder had pleaded not guilty and was going to trial. So we can't publish anything for fear of jeopardising that trial. It's all subdued to say we have to wait until the trial's over. So I'm, I'm basically just preparing this stuff in the background as we're going, knowing that the trial date's coming up in November 2017. And that's how it sort of unravelled. And I basically it became more from a story about a bad decision that a judge had made around letting... Rob Hohua, that was his name. That's that killed Murray. You know, that that would have been a six hundred word story. You know, bang it out and, and and walk away. It became quite. You know, I spent a lot of time with Vicky and and just mapping out Murray's life, and it began to make me think more about well, why? Like, why? How unfair is it that that Murray's had this life and limited choices really, and and then she's ended up been brutally beaten to death by the person that proclaims to, to love her while their 19-month-old daughter's strapped in the stroller watching it all happen. And you just think, oh my gosh, like, how how do we get to this point? And, then, and that made me just sort of realise that some people have fewer options in life than someone like I did and have... An, I think Guy mentioned this the other week. You know, he he, he feels like he leads a, a privileged life, and that's how I felt. And it made me stop to think about just the complexities of <laughs> the complexities of life and how unfair things were, and maybe just a little bit less. I wouldn't say I'm a judgmental person, but it just made my eyes open to how things can play out for someone else the hand that they've been dealt in life compared to the hand that I've been dealt in life. And it just, I don't know, it's, that's why I sort of picked this, this story because it made me, it's its kind of changed me a little bit as a person and as a reporter as a result, just to sort of be things, things are not black and white in life. And reporting on this story and the, the amount of time I spent with Mari's family, leading right up all the way through, of course, the 12 months to the trial and spending time with them during the trial and afterwards. Yeah, it really kind of, just changed the way that I think about things. Not in a light bulb moment, but like in a, a very slow, gradual sort of a way of just realising that, you know, some people have got it really hard. And by telling this story, I'm hoping to show people who will never experience what these people have gone through, 
hopefully they'll read it and not just think this is a sad story but just think wow like you know we've got a problem in New Zealand in terms of what's fair and what's not. There's a couple of points that I want to make uh, in regard to that because yes uh, it's really good for journalists to understand that they're not therapists you're there to tell the story you're there to observe and then to report what you're observing and to draw out as much of that as you can but there's healing in the presence and there's healing in the telling of the story. I could imagine Vicky was offloading as she was because there's healing going on and being able to tell that story that nobody in our situation would usually sit down and listen to. Yeah, I think there is because sometimes people just want someone to talk to and someone to listen and I think that's one of the key skills a journalist can have is to not insert themselves into an interview too much and just let it come out and, and just guide. So Vicky lived in Fokatane. The the murder happened in Oportiki and Mari was buried out at um, Waihau Bay, which is about about another three hours east. And so we, Al Gibson and I, the photographer, we actually took Vicky out to where Marty was buried because she hadn't actually been there. And it transpired because she didn't actually have money for petrol to go mm-hmm. to go out there. And this is something that I wouldn't even, you know, if I wanted to get somewhere, well, it doesn't, I don't stop for two seconds to think about worrying about petrol money, for example. So we had Vicky in the car with us driving out there and it was, I don't know, it was just kind of like, it just brought it home to me, like, you know, this is this is hard. And it was quite an emotional time out there at the um, where Mari was buried. And, and Vicky was just so open with how she felt and her grief and, and what it, because she had felt bad <clears throat> about things that had happened. And so she's just, you know, pouring this out in a, in, a, in a monologue. And you almost feel like you're intruding or exploiting her grief. And, you know, you, you've then got to, like, package that up in a way that, because it was so raw, you want to show people that as well, but not do it in a way that sort of, you know, yeah, exploiting her. So, yeah, and we've sort of lost touch a little bit in recent times. But for a long time afterwards, we'd be in touch. And also Mari's auntie, also called Mari, who is now looking after uh, Mari's daughter, Vivian. She sort of adopted her. So kept in touch with her as well for a while. And, um yeah, it's. I feel like you do play a part in helping people, giving a voice to the voiceless. I think that's a, bit, that's a common thing that we would say in, in in the journalism trade. But I think it is true. I think if we hadn't done the story, um, and I think I've done it in a sensitive mm. way that's not kind of shying away from from some pretty tough stuff. I think that's how to help the family as well in a small way. Yeah, and it opens a window. I mean, that's a long story. It's like 5,000 words or so, and you get towards the end, and you've got that video of Vicky at the graveside and her her tears. It's it's powerful, and it's something that most of us would never see. It's a story and a grief and a way of life a lot of us have absolutely no connection to. One of the things that uh, I would like to use stronger language, but one of the things that makes me angry is when I see people talking about poverty who have had no encounter with it or talking about trauma with no encounter, then going, well, why didn't she just... The, you can imagine the responses. Why didn't she just... Why did she go out with him? Why didn't she just pick a better man? Yeah. Why don't they just go and get one of the jobs in the paper? Yeah. Uh, that's got to get your goat when you've been in the middle of something like this. 
Yeah, because, and you know, and all the family violence experts would say, well, that's one of the questions that we should not be asking of, of victims. We should not be saying, why didn't you leave? Because mm. it's putting the blame on the victim as opposed to the perpetrator. And so mm. the story went beyond just Mari's personal story and what happened to her, but like looking into those wider systemic issues, which basically show that if you're a, a Maori woman that comes from a poorer background with limited education that you are a lot more likely to die than anyone else in New Zealand. Mm. And so that shows that there are plenty of these one-off cases. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Māori harlots out there and many of which have been reported on um, widely. But it's living a look at the wider the wider sort of systemic issues. And you know, I'll make a point here as well. Māori's background would have definitely led her to that to that point and that's not for that's not gonna be the path that everyone else will have but I know that her killer's background was just as horrendous as well. So it would be easy to, to box up Rob Hohua as a as a bad guy. But, you know, stuff came out during the trial and at the sentencing about his own sort of background which led him to this to this point. And I mean he was a gang member as well, but sort of his own abuse that he suffered which led him to that point. So yeah, it's people were quick to judge, quick to make assumptions about things, but I'm kind of hoping with stories like this that people will sit back and read it and be affected by it and maybe not be so quick to, to judge or point the finger next time around. Mm. We've got quite a punitive society, I feel, in New Zealand, so people will see a sentence, for example, oh, he only got 15 years in mm. prison, so well, hang on, like, 15 years is a long time, like, you know, and it's never going to be enough if, some, if, what, if someone close to me was murdered, no sentence would ever be enough to, to bring them back. But I feel like you're going to protect society by putting people away, but that's not the answer to what will be an ongoing problem. Yeah, I would say we go there because it's the easy answer. I mean, this came up with Guyan as well, just how punitive our culture is. And we've talked about it here, just this underlying trauma in our nation. But it's easy to say, let's throw them in prison, that, than to address the trauma. Because then we have to address something that's deep-seated, that's historical, that has no easy answers, that will require lots of investment and a sea change in how we view each other. That's hard and it's complex. So it's much easier to say, let's throw them in prison. Yeah, and from a reporting perspective... It's a lot easier to write that story as well. Like yeah. if you're under pressure to file a story from court, the easy thing to do is, you know, we've seen a few of these before, like you headlight on the sentence that they're going to get and, and then the reaction from the victim. And, you know, I've been in those situations. I know you need to file and get online, but when you do that too much and, and that just becomes stock standard as opposed to let's stop and have a breath and let's have a look at the, the why. And, and there's lots of great reporting around that in the country, don't get me wrong. But... um Often those ones don't grab the headlines as quickly or things fade or things move on. And, um, yeah, I think these sorts of stories, the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Abuse and State Care and and churches and other faith-based institutes, like things like that, those are the big things which we need to keep having those tough conversations because it's not getting getting better. No, and to understand that uh, the abuse in state care uh, or the abuse in care that covers state and faith-based groups feels historical, but actually this stuff is going on and there's a bit of your story, the bit that really got me. Uh, I want to read out some, some parts here because I think it captures what if... If young Vivian didn't have Auntie Murray in her life, she's just being set up to be another 
person playing out the same story again later. I mean, we read her story and her auntie says, I was, you wrote this a year later. Her auntie says, I was aware Vivian uh, had a life before she even knew who I was, said Auntie Mari. It wasn't a good life, but it was her life and the only life she knew. They tried to sing songs on the drive home to Takanini. This is as her auntie was taking her away to effectively become her parent and care for her. But Vivian was silent, no tears, nothing. And we're talking about a toddler here. It was almost cruel to try to get into her world, said Auntie Mari, so I had to be patient. Everyone at home was on strict instructions to smile but not approach the timid toddler. Vivian refused to accept food, instead scrounging from the bin of the bottom of the freezer looking for peas spilled from the packet. But after several days in her new home, she started to relax. She started to go through the kitchen cupboards. We just let her pull everything out, says Auntie Mari. She won't play with toys, but give her a plastic cup or dishcloth and she'll be entertained for hours. And then she's getting better. But then later we hear the nightmares still come each night, but the less intense now. And she cries out for Nana. Like, if there wasn't the intervention of love there for Vivian, child that was malnourished, who watched her mother get beaten to death as she was strapped into a stroller, who was later clutching her dead mother, you could just imagine the life that she would end up with if someone like her auntie had not stepped in. And that comes around to that sort of intergenerational trauma is that word again because I can't think of a better one but you're right if, I mean Auntie Murray is a beautiful woman she's just amazing and she was so generous in her time with me as well and you could see how much it meant to her to be able to take Vivian and look after her and you know and um, and from the various sort of Facebook updates I've seen she seems to be doing really well and and, um, and she will have a life now that perhaps she might not have had it not been for, the, for that intervention and um you know, it's just, yeah, I mean, I had actually forgotten some of those details there. It's quite sort of heartbreaking to, to hear that uh, read out loud. And you've only got to take your hat off to that love and that compassion that, that Mari's showing. And, and one point that probably sums up the story to me is a quote in there from Jane Drum, who uh, she runs the Shine organisation, which, which helps women and families who have been victims of abuse. And she makes the point in there saying, look, whenever there's a a child is killed in New Zealand, whether it's a near glassy or the Kahui twins or Moko or and the, unfortunately the many others, there's this very short lived anger and, and sort of outrage about it and everyone says, This is terrible, what are we gonna do about it? And there's a blip of it and then it and then it kind of goes away until until the next one. But Jane's point was saying, Well, we get outraged and sad about what's happening to children, as we rightfully should, but the ones that don't get killed, the ones that survive the abuse, they grow up to be the Rob Hohuas mm. and the Murray Harlicks. And we don't have that same empathy or sympathy for them as for them as adults or even that same understanding as to why someone might be reacting uh, or acting in, in, in that way. And that was one thing that I sort of take away from that because often now I'm reporting on other cases and you just, you know, you just read and you think, oh, I can't believe they've done this. And then you've got to, you know, it makes me stop and think, well, actually, there's got to be an underlying reason as to, you know, what's led someone to, to that to that place. And again, it comes to inform the reporting to be a bit more 
nuanced and, and it's shades of grey and, and not black and white. It's not just goodies and baddies, but you know everything in between. Yeah, because yeah. I, could, I could imagine that if uh, little Vivian at 19 months had been killed as well in that situation, we would have been an angry, angry nation for a little bit. But then you hear the story of Vivian, and if, her, if the auntie here hadn't stepped in, the trajectory she would have gone down could quite well have led to her doing stuff where we're going, throw her in prison. Um, mate, you you report on a lot of heavy stuff, and you're a human being. You're great at what you do, but there's still got to be little bits of this that eat away at the at the soul. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those ones uh, when I was thinking about what story I might talk about. I was thinking, oh man, I need to come up with something really good that I can like, you know, might show some emotion. But I, I actually couldn't think of any stories that made me stop and cry or break down or whatever it might be. But I think often that's just because, um, and Joy Reid mentioned this in her podcast the other week, often as reporters we're, we're diving in and out, so we're going to a disaster zone. Like I went to Samoa within 12 hours of the tsunami hitting and we were the first to hit the, the villages that had basically been completely wiped out and at that point no one knew how many people had died and the bodies getting pulled out of the sand and you know and so we're there watching this live unfold like literally the first people from outside of the country in the world to to get there and report on it and send it back but I get to go home at the end of the week and that was when we would have worked on 18 hour days probably for a week and then I tagged out and another reporter came to relieve me and we got to go home and I got to go home to my family I think I went home and played Xbox or (laughs) whatever it might be to sort of just chill out for a while but we dip in and dip out of these tragedies, but we get to go home. And then Joy made the point that it was harder for her with Christchurch when the earthquakes happened because that was her home. She wasn't just reporting on it, she was she was living it. And um, I think that's a really valid point. I think in terms of the cases that I've reported on, in terms of whether it's murders or abuse or whatever it might be, sometimes I kind of think, oh, I'm a bit callous for not, for not getting more upset about it. But what happens is, is there's a slow erosion of your margin, I suppose, your, your margin between sort of coping and, and not coping. So I actually, I don't actively try and avoid these cases anymore, but I also don't actively seek them out. I don't read a lot of other stories of this nature. So unless it's specifically drawn to my attention by someone to say, hey, look, this is, you know, you need to read it. So I don't know, you don't shut down, but you do, you kind of like compartmentalise your life a little bit. I'm quite good at shutting off home life and, and, and work time. But yeah, I've got I've got my own kids now, so I think that's the other thing that's probably changed. So prior to having kids, this sort of stuff didn't affect me now. But I mean, basically, I think Vivian was the same age as my eldest at the time, so that kind of did affect me more because you start imagining your own kids and <laughs> being in that situation. I mean, it's healthy though, because what you're talking about is creating boundaries. Lance Bedette in his book, The Dark Side of the Brain, talks about undercover cops and some techniques that they use to make sure that when they're at home, they're not the character that they are as they're out undercover. And just little things like having a piece of clothing that they might put on as they leave the house in order to take on that persona, making sure they take that off before they walk back into their home and they become uh, mum or dad. Or there might be a name that they have. So as they walk out of the house, they say that name in their head and then they say their own name as they come back into the house. So you're creating those boundaries in a very similar way 
Mate, I want to ask you about the future of journalism, but first I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for illuminating a world that we need to know is there, otherwise there's no way we can address it, for illuminating it with compassion, but doing so in such a way that doesn't make yourself the story, that actually does highlight these people whose lives have been tragic, but also injecting some hope in as well. So thanks for that. Future of journalism in New Zealand. Well, because these stories aren't going to go away, and we always need people who are going to tell them. What does the future of journalism in New Zealand look like? Uh, that's a good question. I often just look to the next story I'm going to write, but <laughs> I'm actually quite hopeful about the future of journalism. I wouldn't have said that maybe five years ago, um, maybe even 12 months ago, I think, not just because I work for the Herald, but we've come out of covid stronger as have other organisations the staff and everyone else is doing really good work. I think that's the other thing I want to say is that I get annoyed at various Facebook or social media sites which hark back to a golden era of journalism which to my mind is looking back with rose tinted glances a little bit I think the work that has been done now particularly in the investigative space is quite brilliant and we've got there's dedicated resources and teams at pretty much every organization so you know there's often criticism of you know of clickbait or which is a horribly misunderstood term but I won't get into that but actually yes there's what I would call volume news every day that the daily breaking news that will be covered by everyone very well because people will need to know what's happening in their community every single day and there's there's always been entertainment news. The Royals have always you know, been on the front page of the Herald or wherever it might be. It's, this is not a new thing. But also, I think at the moment, um, really hard-hitting journalism is probably as good as, it's, as I can remember. I've been a journalist for 17 years, so I think it's, it's in a pretty good space. Obviously, the industry is facing a lot of challenges around our revenue and, and the golden rivers of classified ads dried up a long time ago. And then we've got the, the added challenge of Facebook and Google sort of clipping the ticket on the way through. I, I, I am a firm believer in the Herald's strategy of putting in a paywall that people should pay for good news, which takes a long time to put together and produce and promote. That's proved to be a raging success for us so far. I'm very hopeful about it. Um, I see myself being a journalist for a, a long time yet. We've got some great other newbies coming through in our newsroom and, and many others who I sort of keep tabs on. So I think we're in pretty good shape. Can we do better? Always. But I think there's been a lot of turbulence in the last five to ten years which has been unsettling for, for the industry and those who work in it. But I feel like there's a bit more stable ground at the moment and hopefully that'll that'll lead to more growth. Mm. So yeah, if you want to be a journalist, come and work. Come and work for us. Get in there, start training. Be good. Someone <laughs> well, needs to take over from me. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Jared, I would usually say it's been a pleasure, but with the nature of the topics that we've covered, I don't think it's quite the right word. So it's yeah. been an honour. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Cheers. Thanks to Jared for sharing your story. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series. And thanks to you for listening. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who might find it valuable. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us. 